Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast. Make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Ray. And I'm your other host, Ernest Hemingway, once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. And I agree with the second part. And then Andy Dufresne crawled through a mile and a half of shit. And he came out the other side clean. And that's what we're doing today, Rye. Exploring, yes. exploring the amazing Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey in this incredible, incredible psychological thriller, Seven. Fuck yeah. Or first fun fact... Seven is 25 years old because it came out in 95, which is wild. So this is like one of the better psychological thriller crime horror movies that came out in the 90s. I'll just say that. There have been some great ones. Scream, 90s, good slasher, good. I recently rewatched all four of them. Pretty sure I texted you, Chris. That was like, yes, you Scream did. is truly underrated because it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I saw seven for the very first time when i was in college it was that long and i'm mad that i had gone basically almost a vast majority of my life without having seen this movie because it is so good and so brilliant for me i honestly don't remember the first time i watched seven i I definitely watched it in college. I don't quite recall if I watched it in high school or early, any earlier on, but it's it's a fantastic, morbid, ter- like just horrifying film. You know, I'm just thinking about it now. I might have to retcon it at some later time, but I'm fairly certain this may be my first David Fincher film, like ever. No, well, I mean, I, I've watched other oh, like, like, like in, in, in like the the course of my lifetime. Like, I'm pretty sure this is probably my first introduction to. Oh wait, no, you know what? No, I lie. I lied. Uh, there's Panic Room, uh, and then there's yes. Fight Club. Uh, yes. I definitely saw Fight Club before I saw Seven. If I remember Same. the timeline correct, yeah. Which so. you know, watching Fight Club before this, I feel like watching Seven, and maybe this is me. By the time I saw Seven, after wa- having watched like Fight Club and all these other horror movies, this this felt like so tame. But watching it through the lens of this came out in 1995, this is an intensely brilliant movie. It's I still think it's one of Fincher's greatest films. I mean, Fincher has has many many titles under his belt that hold that status. You know, Fight Club is arguably one of them. He's Zodiac, uh, Girl with the Zodiac Dragon Tattoo. Is he has done some shit that are like art in my opinion. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I I really thought was going to bomb because we know how I am about American remakes. It is one of the very few American remakes that stands up to the original source material. He has done so much that stand out in people's minds and he is he is I, I think he's one of a kind. I mean he did Gone Girls, Social Network, and again I will go back to Zodiac, Mindhunter. We have we have actually haven't done an episode of Mindhunter, have we? Or did we? No. I don't know. We no, should. We, haven't. we should we, haven't. we should do that because I love Mindhunter. I'm sad that season three is not it's happening. On, it's on permanent hiatus. So sad. So good. It's so good. Permanent hiatus, which makes me so sad because Mindhunter was done so well. 
But I don't. But I think it's on permanent hiatus. It's not. It's not a Hannibal situation. It mm. didn't get canceled. Yeah. It's on permanent hiatus because David Fincher has plans. Like they have plans for season three. Like they already know what they're doing. They just scheduling conflicts and things that were probably already in the works with a bunch of actors and David Fincher. Like I know part of why he put Mindhunter on hold was something that came out very recently or is coming out of his. It I still have hopes it didn't get canceled. It is on a permanent hiatus. Until I oh. hear the words, it's canceled. It, <laughs> as much as I love Mindhunter, I mean, some other newer projects, I did not know this. I'm just reading it right now. Uh, he's an exec producer on Love, Love, Death, and Robots. And I love that show right now. I, 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 know that's, I know they're coming out with a season two. So maybe he's still attached to that project, which is, you know, very good news. Because that, that show rocks my smocks. It's so good. He also was an EP on House of Cards. He's done what, didn't, wasn't he also shit. like writer and director on it as well? At least for I, like a couple of episodes. Yeah, or a lot of episodes, I believe. Yeah, he's done. He's done a lot of stuff. So thank you for existing. Yes, and thank you for creating this messed up but wonderful crime thriller slash psychological thriller. Hell yeah! I, I guess I think we should start by giving a recap because i i i don't want to ever like film shame anyone because you, you may not never like especially for people who are listening to us have, have never seen seven or you're listening to this and you didn't pause the, the podcast and then you know just actually just pause it watch it play it come back last warning <laughs> if you haven't right let's go through our quick recap, and then let's just dive deep. There's a lot to unpack with, with Seven. So much to unpack, I'm so ready. Okay. Two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motive. The most elegantly spoiler-free synopsis I think we've ever encountered. <laughs> and, and yet, it, like, it does not do this movie justice. Like, not it's, at all. It, I mean, yes, that, that is the, the plot, but the execution... It is mind blowing, and now I was I, that was one of the things why I was uh, that was shocked about when watching this film because it's I know it's twenty five years old. It does not feel twenty five years old. It feels no, it incredibly it feels- timeless and, and incredibly. It's just so well done, so timeless, and I, and part part of that is like the the way the world building works, and in another way you could credit it towards the timeless existential questions and philosophies and moralities or like or the the meditations on evil which is one of its core tenets of what the movie's about this is a question that all of humanity has struggled to find an answer uh, or solutions to and in that way the movie just felt fresh it, this movie could have came out like this year and it, people were none the wiser. Oh, yeah. So the first time I saw this, I like I told you, I was in college. And the friend of mine who showed me the movie said, so the brilliant thing about the marketing for this movie is that the guy who plays the killer. Kevin Spacey. Yes. Did not have his name anywhere near it. 
because they wanted it to be a true reveal. A true John Doe. Yes, a very true John Doe. Spoilers. Here, here, <laughs> Spoilers. here is the problem with that statement. Saying this to me, I was already very excited to watch this movie. So I'm setting a scene for you. I was very excited to watch this movie. She was really, and I was feeding off of her energy. She was really excited to watch it with me. And she's telling me this while I'm watching the opening credits. Kevin Spacey's name is in the opening credits. So I said, oh, he's the killer, isn't he? And she just lost it. And I was like, you shouldn't be telling me this shit while the credits are rolling. Because, of course, I'm going to notice that. Because everyone knows the goddamn poster. It's Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt on the poster. You know they're in it. When you say... Also, top billing. Top billing. Kevin right, Spacey's the big like, name. Come on, man. I had seen American Beauty 65 million times up until that point. Like, I knew who he was and a bunch of other shit that he did. But, like, I knew who he was. So, like, if you're going to show this to someone who hasn't seen this movie and is choosing to listen to us and not listen to the spoilers and they're sitting there watching it with you, if you're going to give them that factoid, make sure Kevin Spacey's name has moved on from the credits before you tell them that. Because you won't know anybody else's name in the credits. <laughs> you know, they should have just left it, left the credits blank, you know. Yes, yes. Either that or they should have left his name out of the opening credits and just put it at the end where it was to just, you know. But speaking, speaking of that credit scene uh, and the end credit scene, I mean, there's, a, well, there's like a lot of things to unpack. The original sequence of that opening title it was supposed to be uh, Morgan Freeman's character who plays uh, Detective William Somerset. Somerset was buying a house in the countryside or some rural area, and then he has cold feet, and then he travels back to the city. Uh, this was a couple of days before a test screening where they didn't have the time and the money to film this sequence. So Kyle Cooper, uh, Kyle Cooper, he, he was... Um, He's a he's a, a accomplished American filmmaker, but he's more he's more, more I guess designer's more of an accurate term, but he's very well known for creating title sequences for motion pictures. So Kyle got approached to create a opening scene. The set team and the production team, they spent like a literal ton of money and time to handcraft the two thousand notebooks that John Doe had. Like they literally, like they, uh, it was a uh, Cly uh, Clive Piercy and John Sable. So they wrote out all two thousand books, two hundred fifty, two hundred fifty pages each of John Doe's ramblings. And Cooper thought, well, we have all this material. Why aren't we using it? So through a multiple, multiple iterations, they ended up with this final product was this really creepy slideshow. Uh, using pages from the book, uh, scenes where John Doe, the character, is seen shaving off his uh, his fingerprints with a razor. You got it's interspersed inter with police photos and photographs and slides, like just to make it look as uh, look as creepy as possible, like the workings and ravings of a uh, of someone who's morally insane, but like. But like meticulous, patient, and uh, has a mission as a zealot, and it was done with this, or was done over this really cool remix of uh, Nine Inches Nails, Closer, and then we got this incredible uh, opening sequence 
and then you know, I know, I know we're jumping ahead. Well, I'm jumping ahead all the way to the ending, but this is really fascinating. Like, I I never recalled like watching the credits of this film until today, and uh, there was two things that really struck me. One, the credits roll in reverse, so instead of like from top to bottom, the credits go roll from bottom to top, um, which I thought was like a very strange, interesting aesthetic choice. Um, and the other thing was really cool was it has all these intricate scratch markings on the back. And I found out that, not, I mean, this is 95. So, I mean, yeah, digital technology and CGI was, you know, around then. But they went for a very organic look where the entire ending credits, none of that was CGI. They literally took a black scratch board and they literally scratched out all of the all like the weird carvings and they just use a camera to like slow pan up through the entire credits and it's like that's a really cool i i, I never seen a credit scene quite like that so i don't know i think this is like a, a testament to not only fitch's vision but like the incredible design team that he had at his disposal i saw something recently going around twitter and possibly reddit saying what's one image from a horror movie that has stuck with you and like made an impact on you like for life and there are two images that i've never that have been so ingrained in my brain ever since i saw them that i will net that like will haunt me forever that i'll never that will never leave me one of them is zelda from the original pet cemetery that is something that just sticks with you forever and a half the other one is the sloth victim from this movie I cannot get that image out of my head. Especially when he starts like waking up and like, ah, and like, when, sees, he, like his... when the detective is over him, when the cop is over him and is like, you got what you deserved. And he goes, and you just lose. But even before that, just like the way he looks like the, the pine cone scent fresheners are all over the room. And you can see that the that the smell doesn't really hit them until they pull off the cover and just the way the whole scene is done it like they're who you see mm. all the bed sores you see how like skeletal thin it is you see all like the track marks of all like the endless amounts of needles that they got he got poked with and then like his he doesn't have a tongue like his his like his lips well, they are like he shoot it off yeah he bit off his own tongue like a long time like before they found him he did that to himself crazy david fincher actually said that when that actor auditioned for the part he was 96 pounds and as a joke he said you should lose more weight so the guy like he said it as a joke he lost six more pounds before he came to film that's wild so he is that like oh oh i can't i can't um, when I was watching the credits, I, I again, I had no idea this was also a thing, but Rob Botton uh, did the principal practical effects. And Rob Botton, if you know, he's a legend with like practical special effects in horror films. Like for example, like he he's he one of his greatest claim to fame was Howling. I'm sorry. You were going to say the thing. I said the hell. Yeah. 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 John Carr's the thing. And uh, he's done plenty of other ones, but I, I had no idea he did seven, which is awesome. And I, uh, Rob Button. So, yeah, props. So, initially, New Line did not want the ending that we got. And Brad Pitt was like, I will straight up refuse to do this movie if you don't keep this ending. The most famous endings of all, like, 
I, I guess all cinema. What's in the box, man? What's in the box? I literally every single day, me and my coworkers, we just shout that to each other in in the office. And this that scene it was my is text tone for a while in college. I like recorded Brad Pitt saying it and like made it my text tone. So every time someone texted me, it would scream, "What's in the box?" <laughs> that scene went through so much development hell it's crazy like in a way this movie wouldn't have fallen into production or had the sheer vision and auteur force of david fincher if if not for that scene so in the original script that was the ending new line cinema had a lot of misgivings about it they wanted to cut it out they wanted to do like some other softer takes like i mean obviously like the 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 ending we get and the ending in that script is horrifying uh it's really nihilistic and but it's it's genius it it just hits you hits you like a sledgehammer as they say in the end of the film but in the original script that was the ending but they changed the script but when they were filled when they were filled fielding when they were fielding for directors the original script was accidentally sent to Fincher. And Fincher, at the time, I think he was really jaded from the production of Alien 3. He had like a terrible, terrible experience of Alien 3. He was at a place in time where he wanted to quit film. And this original script of Seven brought him out because he thought this was so amazing. Aren't we so glad he stuck with it? Oh. Yes, yes. And uh, Fincher, Fincher loved the original script. He loved like what it what not not necessarily what it showed, but what it implied. Like like we said before, uh, the story is much less of a well. It, it is a pr- police procedural. At the same time, it is it's more like a like a sermon or like a meditation yeah. on evil, or like a morality tale wrapped up in a police procedural. And he loved that. Um, and then after that, the head in the box ending got so much pushback. And then as Rye said, prior to seven, Brad Pitt was in another film called Legends of the Fall. In his performance, or in that film, the emotional cathartic ending of that film was cut after negative feedback from test audiences. And I guess like Brad Pitt really took that personally or like he didn't want to compromise his artistic integrity and vision. So yes, he, he also fought um, the studios and like the depression team fought Uh, at one time they said, uh, I was reading how instead of Gwyneth Paltrow's head, they found the head of, of a dog. I guess one of the dogs that one of his dogs. yeah, Yeah. One of his dogs, but like, I fridging, you know, I'm very, I'm very like fridging is an uncomfortable thing. It, it can be a overused and a very lazy form of writing, but I feel here, you know, with Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Tracy, um, uh, Brad Pitt's wife in the film, I, I felt like that death was earned and it, it fit with the themes. It fit with, it felt, it fit with the narrative arc of all the characters, but especially John Doe and, and Mills. And it just solidified the horror of the 
of the of the film and like it also subverted like the standard tropes you would see in a police procedural movie like if this was any other film especially you know and not like the twisted vision of david fincher what would happen is tracy gets kidnapped or mills realizes that tracy is missing and then mills and Somerset they they follow the trail of breadcrumbs they front they find find kevin spacey they find john doe uh there's like this climatic crazy shootout you know all sinners are punished uh, and tracy is saved maybe maybe she she gets scarred but uh, i guess in a in a way like to keep with fincher's pseudo vision like people all the all the actors are scarred in some way uh but here fincher's like no i want like i want greta patrick to die and i want to subvert like the ending like uh, of police procedures yes the bad guy gets killed he gets punished but but in, in the process mills becomes a monster mills plays right into the hands of john doe in the end john doe did win uh and that makes that ending so brave so crazy so so balls to the wall like insane and i feel like at the time like david fincher is probably the only person who could have pulled got away with it and he did you know okay so i believe kevin spacey john doe um says this exact line or says something to the effect of this line in the movie that david fincher evidently said to kevin spacey and brad pitt he said, this is not going to be the movie that you're remembered for, but it may be a movie you're incredibly proud of. I think they, they got both. I mean, yeah, but also, is there not a line incredibly similar to that that John Doe says to both of them in, while they're in the car on the way to being out in the middle of nowhere? You're going to be remembered. Oh, yeah, you're going to be remembered, too, for so, so long those you're lines. You're going to be remembered for the life for the rest of your life because I allowed you to live it or something like that. Or, and, or, or what, what's left of your what's life that I allowed of, you yes, to live. Yes. yes. Yeah. So it, yeah, I find it, um, I find the phrasing, the choice phrasing of that um, kind of on the nose, but also like remarkably on the nose. Also, apparently Brad Pitt used his own ties because he wanted Mills to have bad fashion sense. <laughs> well, I mean, Which there, I think I was, is hilarious. I I was watching this this film. Uh, I mean, that I think um you could write you could write this off as like very deliberate, or you could write it off as like reading too much into it. I think it's the former. I feel like David Fitcher is very smart enough to build effective character building just with like the the set piecing and the costuming. Uh, they were describing how Brad Pitt, his character, is someone who's very simple. You know, he's he's like a bit like he was described uh, in this fantastic video, which I'll which I'll post uh, in notes that Brad Pitt is he acts and he looks like a big kid in an ill fitting suit. Um, and then he, he does that. He's like he's very childish. He's very, very rash, very prone to giving giving into his emotions, um, despite having the much more experienced and uh, jaded, uh, cynical, but like. But he earned he like you know Morgan Freeman his character earned all that wisdom he's been he's been you know on the beat for like forty years, um, and you see uh, in the way that Brad Pitt acts and dresses and even how he talks like he's very simple minded he's a kid he's that totally tracks with his bad fashion sense. I love how in a two hour film the first time you see the villain 
is an hour and 35 minutes into the movie. As the, as the uh, paparazzi fo- photographer. Right. But and you you hear his voice, but unless you're familiar with Kevin Spacey, you can't quite place that it's him. But he has an, a remarkably incredible opening scene. He gets out of the cab, and you just see the back of his head, and you just meekly hearing him say, "Detective, detective," until he screams it, and you turn around, and it is a a very like frail, like very thin looking man covered in blood. It sort of reminded me of the Bone Collector in the sense where they were like, this is a man who is independently wealthy, is extremely intelligent, and has nothing but time on his hands. It just, like, it gave me that feeling. I was just trying to poke... I think that was, like, my one question of trying to poke the bear. Like, he was so bloody in the uh, when he arrived in the police station. How did the the cab driver not, like... <laughs> not like 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 say anything or like or like he was I mean, driving I, him to the police station what was he gonna do say no i guess <laughs> i, I, I mean, been the most i i feel i feel for that cab driver that must have been like the most surreal scary ride of his life i think so two things with that one think of all the things that john doe did over the course of the movie like i'm sure he could have found a way to like get a cab to take him But also, it makes me think of BBC's Sherlock. There is a moment in one of the episodes where he comes in head to toe in blood with a harpoon. And he goes, well, that's tedious. And Watson looks at him and says, you got on the tube like that? He said, yeah, none of the cabs would take me. So (laughs) just both of those images are just now in my mind when I look at John Doe getting out of a cab covered in blood in front of a a police precinct. Also, we we established that that John Doe is filthy rich. He's cash flush, so he could have just handed like the cab driver like ten thousand dollars, like take me to the police, please. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I also need to correct myself. I have a correction to make. Apparently, I was wrong, so I don't know why I have a memory of knowing that Kevin Spacey was John Doe. Because Kevin Spacey's name only pops up in the end credits. He's not in the opening credits. Oh, well. So why do I know? Why did I know that he something happened where she told me about it? I don't know. I don't know. But I remember seeing his name attached to something and I was like, oh, it's him. Well, it's not the movie poster. Not the movie poster. It wasn't. I feel like maybe just getting your timelines mixed up, you know. I don't know. But I know I sat there and I was like, oh, it's Kevin Spacey. And she looked at me like, well. That just ruined it for you. I said, no, you didn't. Did, that did, a million were you watching? Were you reading like the DVD on the back of the box or something? I have no idea, but I knew it was Kevin Spacey. But here's the thing. Even You're psychic. That, even knowing that, it didn't ruin it for me because I got so distracted by everything else that was happening that I forgot I was supposed to be looking for Kevin Spacey. So no, he finally don't shows look up. for Kevin Spacey. He comes to you. He shows right, up at your, at your door. Exactly. And it made the moment even better. It made the payoff for that even better. But I have a very specific memory of saying, oh, it's it has to be Kevin Spacey. And I don't remember why I know that before having seen it. Because Kevin Spacey, he's intense. He's a person of intense gravitas and he i mean he's also problematic now but he yes. wasn't then yes we 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 100 we're acknowledging that kevin spacey's kevin problematic Spacey's 
Like we're even if this wasn't a horror movie podcast and this was just like a regular movie podcast, there's no way in hell we'd be covering American Beauty at that point at this point in time. Like he is a problematic figure in life right now. But yeah, I mean we we can we're, we can I'm we're, we're, we're able to like dissect his work yes. and 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 still like acknowledge he's a he's a bad dude. I mean those are not mutually exclusive. So I mean. His performance in this was intense. And this was, he was coming right off of the usual suspects when he did this movie and he didn't want any credit for it. And he, it was, it was supposedly it was his idea to sort of keep the up with the John Doe thing. Um, which is fucking, ah, it's fucking brilliant. Like, I don't want to give him credit for it because of who he turned out to be as a person. However, that is a fucking ingenious idea. Okay. He's great. Yeah. He's, well, he's... Well, John Doe. The John Doe's, John Doe's great. He's a yeah. terrifying villain. Kevin Spacey... Uh, he's a worthy yeah. villain that could, it, had he existed, could very easily give any notable real-life serial killer a run for their money. Well, I mean, that's the that's the beauty and the genius of it, because yes, this is a fictional killer, at, fictional character. At the right but, period of time, this could have gone down like that. Exactly, and and we take the perspective, or you know, we are riding along with the, mostly with the POV of of Mills. You know, we are the simple person that we're running along for this ride and we experience the horrors of or, or, or if you want if you empathize you know or sympathize with john doe what's what's really great like they yes they, they show they 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 100 state that john doe he's morally insane like the stuff that he does is monstrous even though he prof he professes himself to be a martyr, like a like a Christ-like figure, doing the the work of God. But at the same yeah, time, he calls like it his work and his art, like it's this big gift to humanity. Like I'm showing you the ugliness of what exists in the world to try and prevent it from occurring in life, to try and teach you something, to say like, "Hi, I've given you the worst of humanity. Don't be like these assholes." You you can be simultaneously repulsed and sympathize with John Doe. I mean, and it's just like it's just like that level of uh like crazy symbolism and themes and analysis is there. Um, and like one of the biggest themes that it throws around is apathy. What what is apathy? And what how do we deal with it? And uh, for Morgan Freeman's character, he there's that one scene where they're they're talking in in the bar. And Morgan Freeman's he's 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 all he's like the old jaded cynical guy. Uh, and he says that he understands that apathy can be a solution because when you uh, when there's so much evil or crime and decade or and moral decay and, and and corruption in this world, sometimes apathy is the way doing nothing is a choice or is an escape or like shield yourself away from those everyday evils and so he understands like you know apathy is can be a solution and you know brad pitt calls bullshit on him he 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 says you think you you think you think that apathy is the right choice or a welcome solution but i think you you give i think you give your not giving yourself enough credit i think 
Brad Pitt thinks that Morgan Freeman's character is much more has more good and more agency in him than, than for Freeman characters more is, is willing to admit. And then you have Brad Pitt who completely and utterly 100% rejects apathy. Like in a way, he cares too much. He cons- gets consumed by his emotions so much so he's, he cannot think. He and he plays right into John John Doe's trap. And he opens himself to manipulation, and he's he's like putty. And then you have John Doe. John Doe, he is disgusted by apathy, and he's disgusted by the open sinfulness of the world that's taken at face value, taken as normal. Like, there's the, the drug addict and pederast. There's someone who is so insanely vain that she'd rather die than save herself. or uh, there's someone who is so consumed with gluttony uh, that it doesn't, you know, if your body's a temple, you don't respect it, like you know that kind of thing. Uh, and for him, like apathy is like is like this incredible existential problem that needs solving. And to him, his solution is, well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be like the martyr. I'll be like Jesus Christ. I'll be like this savior, and I will do these acts of attrition. I will lead these sermons so people will be forced to listen to me through these acts and you know that's his solution to apathy and it's crazy because you know these are all very like three different ways of interacting or or viewing apathy but each of them has like distinct but you know interrelated ways of viewing it and it's just which one's the right one you know like all of them are problematic you know uh you know brad pitt's approach is that's that's an easy way to get killed or get destroyed or having the your loved ones be destroyed in the process freeman's version well you're just removing us as a society you're just shirking responsibility you know that that itself is you're, you're just you're just being culpable and then you have yeah they have john doe who just takes it to the extreme and like he does horrific acts for quote good intentions and all those all three of those views are problematic uh and horrific in their own way Sorry, that was it. That was my TED talk. Um, <laughs> Damn, Chris. I love philosophy. I love this movie. I love the dude. This is this is my shit. This is like this is like I my will, liberal arts college say, education film. I will say that after I watched this movie, the first thing I did was go out and buy Dante's Inferno. So it had an impact on me. I'll say that. It also made me think that if I put myself in this movie. And I existed in that world. And John Doe picked me as one of his victims, which sin I would be guilty of. Which does something to your psyche when you have to sit there and think about it after you just watched that movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are we, are we going to do that? Are we going to play psychoanalyst? Are we going to open ourselves oh, up? <laughs> okay. Uh... I'll go first. I would be incredibly guilty of envy. Would mm. be my sin. I think it. I would be probably sloth, and it's a weird way of like actualizing that. Cause yeah, I, I would I would actually try to consider myself as like a workaholic, but at the same time, um, you know, it's like it's not having that balance. I know this is like really unhealthy, but you know, we're just gonna lay it all bare out. But like, I, I, I swing in between like like being workaholic mode or like I just like you know put 200% to my work 
and then the pendulum swings like the complete other direction which is where the sloth stuff comes in like when i you know when i when i'm when i have free time or when i'm home sometimes i just don't want to do anything you know just because i just to have that yeah and it's like that like having that like space to do nothing or think about nothing just turning your brain off i i I know that that's like not the actual biblical sense or definition of sloth chris you and i have had many a conversation about this you and i are very similar in that we both work we both do that we both have this tendency to like put 200 percent into work and go all in and then when it's time when we have the time to just sit and do nothing it's what we're gonna do and i get it i'm totally there right before we started recording i was working because you know even though i don't have to get whatever it is done tonight i'm going to get most of it if not all of it done tonight so i can just hit send at seven o'clock in the morning when i get up even though i'm not on the clock at seven o'clock in the morning but i get it but i i know for a hundred percent shit sure though my despite all of that my sin would still be envy Mm. yeah i'd say it's like a mix of like I don't know. Also, we have never been biblically correct on this podcast. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> I think with me, you're getting two for the price of one. You're to get gluttony and sloth. I think those, you know, just kind of kind of round out some of my features. I think so. Going back to Kevin Spacey as John Doe for a second. What I find almost elegant in the way his character is portrayed on screen is they gave him the name John Doe. But even more so than that, they gave him the most unassuming of identities. So when Brad Pitt's say, sitting there saying, "What do you? someone must have seen something. Someone must know something. What do you mean nobody saw anything? When he's interrogating the guy that owns the little porno club, he's like, didn't you see anybody go in there with a bag under their arm? And he goes, guy, everyone who comes in here has a bag under their arm. What are you talking about? He gave him this very generic white guy looking and assuming character. It's why they took so long to find Ted Bundy, because Ted Bundy looked like every other guy of that era. He looked like every other brown haired white guy that it sort of existed, which allowed him to sort of blend in and, and go with the with the crowd of people and why he remained uncaught for however long it's why you could walk by him and not even it's why he just looked at him as a paparazzi and that was it there's nothing remarkable about him that would stand out and that's what makes it perfect definitely and i i think i think uh with somerset like he knows from the onset like uh, somerset he's a visual of wisdom and he's very clinical he he's very observant he like notices stuff that no one else is else does so he's chiding not only mills but the rest of the police department like you you can't belittle this person at you can't write him off as like just some crazy person he's like they don't understand john doe as like someone who's far more smarter and capable and the meticulous and patient and exacting and rigorous uh, all of these you could you could describe as like virtues, but so like Somerset from the beginning, he was the only one to 
really have a he he has like a he had a he had a lead on an understanding how John Doe could be so smart and cunning and and not uncatchable. Um, and then and then and for Mills, like he vastly underestimates Doe or whoever Doe is. Like he always constantly says, like, oh, he's a freak. He's 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 just crazy. Curses at him a lot too. He calls him a motherfucker. He keeps telling him to shut up and. Morgan Freeman treats him with like this air of respect because he understands that whatever he even says, as soon as he opens the box, his first reaction is everyone back off. No matter what happens now, John Doe has the upper hand. He knew he knew. And, you know, when you first start watching this movie, there is a heavy emphasis on the fact that Somerset is retiring at the end of the week. All of this happens over the course of a week also. Like, that's the thing. It happens within the last seven days leading up to Somerset's retirement. And the whole time, at least the first time I watched it, because there is such a heavy emphasis on it, you think he's going to die. He's not going to get to see retirement. He's going to die. And that's not what ends up happening. He ends up staying... He says he'll be around. I'm. I don't. Th- I think he's still retired, but I don't think he left the way no, we, the I way he thought he it, was going to. Yeah, I think what it implies like he he like uh, the way I read it, he, he forestalls his his retirement. He's like, now nah, I'm gonna stay stay on the force. Um, because Maybe like he felt responsible for Mills. He was like, literally, whatever. Oh he yeah, needs, I mean, that's you know. that's a totally that's a totally legit read. And and I think I that mean, he also said that he didn't think this was should have been Mills' first case, no matter what his experience was. And there are everyone should have listened to Somerset, but at the same time, this I mean, like you know, in a way, Somerset instigated some of the or you know propelled some of the events. Like you know, he you know he took on Mill. Well, he took on Mills as his protege. He transferred the case over to Mills, and then Somerset being a creature of rigor and order and he 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 did a lot of the homework that Mills should have been doing like he 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 was spending after hours like overnight looking at library or books and stuff and he didn't have to he 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 was he was retiring but he had a per, he had this personal responsibility or this more he felt this more responsibility to impart as much knowledge to Mills as possible, and you know that's noble because, like, m- how Mills acted, he's fully cocked. He's gonna get himself killed, and he almost did get almost killed. You know, in that chase scene, uh, the way I read at the end of the film, um, Morgan Freeman or um, Somerset, like he stops retiring, like he's he keeps himself on the force, so, which I I think provides some sense of optimism but this it really doesn't like this movie is a this movie is a very bleak nihilistic film oh yeah i think also more to a point of what you said about mills being fully cocked and like loaded and and ready to go morgan freeman spends all night looking up things relative to seven deadly sins because he knew john that this wasn't the the end it was the beginning he knew that this was going to ramp up into something massive and he tried to help mills out and he did what he could and and gave him every gave him like an envelope like left it on his desk and one of the next scenes that we see of mills it's getting like, spark notes. He got the cliff notes version of these things because he was trying to take shortcuts because he was all about, 
I want to get this and I want to do this now. And I, and he, he couldn't take a step back and look at the big picture the way Somerset could. When they were in John Doe's apartment and the, one of the other detectives was like, well, here's something you're not going to like. There haven't been any fingerprints. He's like, yeah. Oh no. She said, here's something you won't believe. We haven't found any fingerprints. He's like, yeah, you're right. I don't believe you. There has to be something. Go check again. He's very much like, no, get it done. Like quick, let's go. So he doesn't want to put in the work. Like you see, uh, you see like uh, Somerset do all his homework for him. You know, there was that scene where at the dinner party where Somerset takes out case files. Mills is doing nothing but like trying to create distractions. Like, oh, hey, here's some beer. Let's just sit around and chat. And like, and, and, and Mills just takes all these shortcuts. Like, oh, uh, probable cause. That scene where he basically falsified evidence. Like, instead of waiting around, getting an, uh, a warrant, you know, taking him into cool down, doing things right, he kicks down the door despite multiple protests from Somerset. Then he pays off uh, a vagrant or I, I'm not sure if they, they were a homeless person or not, but like basically, basically someone who's down on the luck and pays the money uh, to give a, like give a falsified statement to a police officer so they could justify probable cause and not have the evidence they collect at thrown out or as inadmissible in court. You know, that's, and he, that's the thing. He doesn't want to do the work. He takes shortcuts. And I, I forget who, I think who called him out on it. I don't know if it was Somerset or the police chief, but they were saying how they were chi- they were they were chiding Mills for wanting to be a hero and a champion. And sometimes that's you know multiple times like the part the work of a police officer. You do the work. It's not all about like being sh- showy heroics. It's about doing the legwork and waiting and and being diligent and patient and this mills was just some hotshot cop from or detective from upper state new york who wanted to pursue ambitions he was very angry arrogant very full of hubris and he specifically assigned and begged to be transferred to metro uh like one of the worst like crime-ridden cities you know and it's like you know that's he's he's icarus He's really—he's literally Icarus, you know. He got—he's not only for- Icarus, but I do find it interesting that there was a lot of emphasis put on paying off cops for information. Like the system is corrupt, uh, right? As, as, as like the police, the 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 custodians of law are just as corrupt as every every other institution, every other level of society yeah, yeah. in this one and city. John Doe brings it up. Morgan Freeman brings it up, but also. Gwyneth Paltrow, at the very beginning of the movie, the day of his, the first day of his first shift on the job, she calls him Serpico. Uh, what's in that reference to? Um, it's in reference to a man who goes undercover, uh, in the New York City Police Department to uncover corruption and um, corrupted cops. Oh, so he's Al Pacino uh, he... was in the movie Serpico, which is also the other the other thing of it. But yeah, oh. it's based on a real story. Are they implying that Mills was was previously internal and infa- internal affairs? Wow, I cannot talk internal affairs. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know, but I found it interesting that there were these. It's either you can. I feel like you can look at it a couple of different ways. You can either look at it as because of how hot headed Mills was. Um, he could have gone down that path and become one of those cops. Or 
that's why he was there, which is Morgan Freeman's like, why did you insist on being transferred here? Mm-hmm. Like, why, I, why the push? If that's the case, I don't, I don't believe, I don't think that that jives with his character. I don't think that. Well, think, given how quickly he gave in to becoming John Doe's last victim, there is something to be said that maybe he could have gone down that path. Like, we don't know it. So again, it's just things that that I notice watching this now that I didn't really pick up on the first couple of times I watched it. I just thought it was really interesting that they keep bringing up corruption. Oh, I mean, another that point they, in the, uh, to that, um, the, you know, Morgan Freeman, he, he even pays off people. He pays off the FBI agent to collect information on the library books. Um, yep. So even, even as someone as virtuous uh, as Somerset is guilty, well, he did, but you know what? I think it's fun that I think it's funny that we're that we pit the two of them up against each other, and we see Somerset as the more virtuous one when the entire movie he's saying, "I'm no better than the rest of these guys. I I just want out. I'm I'm just tired." I would say that he is virtuous, but he's, I I would be in the same position as Pitt, where he's called. We're calling bullshit on Freeman. We we see we see Freeman as someone who's using apathy or using that as a way to like be modest a bit like i think i mean words are cheap but like i i feel my read on the character morgan freeman like indeed is legitimately a good man um like he he does the he, he legitimately cares uh um as much as he says uh, i hate the city um you know why is he still there um after all these years you know he feels compelled to you know be a steward he has this moment of doubt uh leading up to retirement but uh in a way he he too was scarred into action you know by john doe because the actions of don joe he's like well i'm gonna still be a steward i'm still gonna be responsible you know i'm still gonna punish evil in the best ways i can and he he does all the work he tries to be a mentor he uh tries to keep mills out of trouble and from killing himself i mean um, you know mills obviously gets himself into trouble but i i think indeed he is legitimately one of the good ones and i do agree with mills that no matter how he plays i feel like freeman you know, he is a good person. He's just reluctant to say so. Do you think that that's his sin? Mm. Since we're, we're talking about a movie that is all about sinning and where that gets you. I also... I don't know if it's a cardinal sin. I mean, I, mean, I don't you think know. it would be a cardinal sin, but it could be seen as a sin, like, you know, too much hubris. I don't think Freeman's character suffers from too much hubris. I feel like he suffers from too much... Humility. Oh, not hubris. Yeah, that's the word. It's not hubris. Uh, I don't know what whatever is like the ultimate antithesis antithesis of pride. Like he it's he has sloth. that. I guess sloth. Yeah, I guess I guess in the way sloth. But like, I mean, Again, I don't know. Not in the biblical definition, but in in a definition that we have de- already determined as fitting for us. I do. Does it ever get explained why John Doe looks at Morgan Freeman and says, I know you? Because he looks at him as he's getting on the ground and says, hey, I know you. I think that that line was meant for Mills, but... The camera cuts to Morgan Freeman, so... I think for, like, analytical purposes, I think 
Somerset would be very low to admit it, but Somerset and John Doe are more alike than than they would especially Somerset would care to compare about. Um, you know, both of them are incredibly smart. They are able to control themselves and and uh, you know, they they're able to like operate in society. Yes, they they're both like very they're patient. They they put in the work. They're they're both devoted to their work, uh, and they both struggle with this existential existential problem of apathy. You know, Morgan Freeman he he thinks he he both he thinks simultaneously that apathy is a solution, but also he's struggling with apathy itself. He he himself said it like apathy is a solution. If that was the case, if he actually really believed that, he could have he could have bought that rule farm in the country at the beginning of the film and stayed there but he didn't he turned away and came back to the city and stayed in the city for 40 years like like we said before john doe he's obsessed with the the moral decay uh, of apathy and like you know like the the sheer disgust that he has for so much society is willing to let modern sin you know go undeterred um and so in those ways they are they're foils of each other, and they're more alike than than not. So that's what I read when John Doe says, "I know you." Yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That tracks. So, unless you have anything else to add from the movie, I want to go on a quick tangent. Oh my god! Uh, yes, please. I know what you're about to go on a tangent <laughs> on. And do it. Please do it. I'm so excited. Please so, do it. So I think I mentioned this before. But if this is your first episode, um, I work for a comic book company, a uh, comic book publisher called Zenoscope Entertainment. Uh, we're, ba- we're based in PA, and uh, we specialize in dark fantasy action and horror comics. And we're pr- prior to publishing and be becoming really well known with our creator-owned works like Grim Fairy Tales, Wonderland, or some of our very, very first comics were licensed comics so one of them was final destination and the other is a prequel well not i'm sorry not a prequel well it's a a tie-in comic book series uh based on the movies so uh this this was a seven-part series originally published september 2006 to sometime in uh, 2007 so if i remember correctly Oh yeah, so October two thousand seven. Um, it's a seven part series, uh, a time series uh, from the pers- from the perspective of uh, John Doe. So each issue uh, is based on one of the seven seven deadly sins, or based on one of the murders. So uh, the two issues I have here, uh, and these were the only ones I could find. The, that being so long ago, um, a lot of these issues have sold out, but um, I they did have. Leftover issues of Sloth, which I don't recall which... Oh, this is yeah, issue number three. That's Sloth. And then issue number seven, which is Wrath. Each of these comic books uh, have a different writer or creator team. It's sort of like a uh, anthology series. Each story in the series surrounds certain aspects of the murder uh, that it corresponds to. So I have Sloth and I have wrath it intersperses internal dialogue or internal sermons i guess you if you will 
about John Doe leading up to or around or after the fact around a particular uh, murder. So there's Sloth. Um, so here, uh, I love I love this issue. Uh, it's written by Mike Cadova, artwork by David Seidman. Uh, then my the the big bosses uh, their their names are on here. So uh, Joe Brescia, he's he's the big boss. Uh, he edited it. And what I love about Sloth, you know, they took the motif of John Doe's notebooks. So like the inner cover and the back looks like one of those elementary school kind of composition notebook with like the oh, the black. It. Yeah. Um, and what I love about this particular issue. Like the the composition of the pages, it feels like a collage. Uh, uh, like all the panels have like these rough edges, as if they were roughly cut out with a pair of scissors. Um, and it has this mix of like photography uh, and like hyper realistic artwork. So it feels like the entire comic book is a scrapbook of its own because like, you, you see images of stills that seem to be pulled from the movie or or images that are, are digitally painted but they, they appear and are composed as if they're like really worn or decayed or overexposed photographs and it's this story is about how uh john doe approached um or what, how he first approached eli or how he, he met eli which was like the corrupt lawyer and how he captured and started torturing uh, the victim of Sloth with all the drugs. Uh, and it's first with that, there's like um, it, it hints or it implies um, his childhood where he's prone to intense migraines. So he himself had a history of medication and um, it also provides vignettes of a child where uh, he got subjected to electroshock therapy. Garrett, this is a tie-in comic, so it's up to you whether to decide whether to decide or not if this is canon. Uh, well, I would say it is. It is. I would say it is canon though, because when they open the one of the drawers in John Doe's house, there's a fuck ton of aspirin in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm saying. I mean, I I I I consider it canon. I consider it like an interesting piece of fluff, but I know some other fans out there might not acknowledge it as canon. But that's I leave that to people to decide. But I'd say like the the characterization of the comic books are really faithful to the character. Some of my favorite pages in uh, in these two comic books, they like they literally take out a page of all the scribblings and they make that into like a splash page, uh, which awesome. is really cool. Um, so yeah, that's Sloth, and then Wrath, which is issue number seven. Um, so it's written by Ralph Tedesco and Joe Brusha. Like again, those are my two big bosses and then there's mike cordova and then there's brett weldell who did letter lettering and artwork so this one has a, a very different art style uh, again i only have two issues so i haven't read the other five issues but out of these two i felt like wrath was more explicit about showing like the inner workings of john doe and his motivations and it's basically it goes through the motions of him setting up the final kill i'd say like a third or the or fourth of the comic book pages are replays of the final scene in in the car uh and the the exact same dialogue they had but it's also interspersed with it with john doe's inner monologue 
Um, and there's two interesting uh, developments they do with this story. They paint John Doe as someone who they basically like straight up compare him to Jesus Christ. Like the entirety of the last murder was his per his version of the the last passion of Jesus Christ, and it goes he goes through like this spiritual quote unquote dark night of the soul where like he's he goes through a moment of doubt when his apartment is taken over and then it shows him going to or praying at a church and as he's kneeling and praying like the church crucifix becomes alive and, and like uh jesus christ starts talking through him through the crucifix and he says like my child you must do what must be done like have faith and then and then and then he becomes emboldened again uh and then he's he's self-monologuing himself as uh, a martyr like just going through the phases of this new twisted version of the passion of christ and uh interspersed with that it, it tries to give him a tragic backstory it implies here that prior to all these murders happening he lost his job he lost his wife and he basically left his mother to die uh while while their his home was burnt down Oh, I, I'm sorry. Um, it also explained like his incredible wealth too. Like his, he basically he got fired. Uh, he, his wife like left him, and he goes back home to his mother. His mother basically was, you know, a, he was a child of abuse, and his mother is basically super religious and was basically kicking him out of her home. She starts, she's like literally burning all this stuff. She herself catches on fire. John Doe steals a key from her and just leaves her to die, leaves the house to burn. And then he has like his dark night of the soul where he, and he goes to a confessional. Then he has like this moment of clarity. He decides what he's going to do. And by a stroke of luck or karma or divine intervention or however you want to phrase it, he uses that key and it's like a safety deposit box. And that's, and he, uh, it's implied like they, they have like a parallel scene of what's in the box, what's in the fucking box, and what's for in the box? and for John Doe, it was a safety deposit box flush with cash, like tons of cash. So his mom was apparently like really rich, and he he used the money from that uh, to fund like the year long ritual. And then this, this oh, and then the other thing, the other thing they that they add to the story was some Somerset, yeah, jeez. Uh, so he, um, so John Doe left a gift for Somerset. So underneath Gwyneth Paltrow's bloody head, there was a notebook, like one final notebook that the police didn't find that he left for Somerset. And because Somerset, as we see at the end of the film, he's now committed to, uh, I guess, finish the case or just to continue the good fight. And we see Somerset being given this final notebook and i didn't notice it until watching some clips of the film before starting this recording so inside the notebook um you see that there's a, a, a like a piece of cloth and i didn't realize it until i was watching the, some of these scenes again uh this is the same i think this piece of cloth was taken from like a piece of wallpaper from Somerset's home, and for some reason, uh, it's, this is like a very quick shot in the beginning of the film where you see 
Somerset, uh, like get up, get ready for work. And one of the things he ca- he carries around with him is this piece of cloth taken from like this, it's like a, it's like a flowery pattern, and he keeps it around his person at all times. So it implies that when John Doe was was seeing and killing Gwyneth Paltrow's character Tracy, he also made a, a pit stop to Somerset's home, and uh, then he he gave him that final notebook. And it's like, oh shit, that's cool. So, and he, so he's giving, yeah. So he, so he gives, so in, in, so in death, like he he's having a, a conversation essentially with Somerset through through his final notebook. That uh, and yeah, it's like wow, that was really cool. So, okay. so awesome. yeah, so yeah. Uh, I would say it's really hard to find these comic books from like Amazon. Well, actually, I guess maybe it's not that hard. You can't get through Zenoscope. Um, but if you, you could probably find these on eBay, I think there was a trade paperback, uh, edition of this. So you probably have to find it on a th- third party market to get it. But I enjoyed the first two issues I read. I haven't read the others, but so I, and I'm not saying that because I'm biased like, because this is my company. Them. I'm sorry. You're making me want to go out and buy them. You should. How that turned out. Well, last time you told me <laughs> to do it, I ended up with like a Junji Ito collection on my bookshelf. So. Well, thankfully, or unfortunately, or one of those two, there's only seven issues of this. So, yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't call that unfortunate. I mean, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being paid to say this. I just like, you know, I like where, I like who I work for. And I think it's really cool that, our first ever comics were, you know, tie-in comics to Seven, which is one of my. I I actually didn't I didn't really know about this until like a year ago because I was I was like I was in, in the back we were doing inventory and then I found like a box like oh my god we did Seven it's like oh and yeah that was like one of our very first comic books so it was pretty cool. Yes. Anyway, that was my law. Lo- that, that that was my other TED talk. Welcome to Chris's TED talk. Yeah, that was awesome. We just did fucking seven. I love it. Seven's so good. Go watch it. I think that this is one of those things, one of those movies that isn't so obviously stuck in its time period, which makes it timeless. Um, Apart from that one line where one of the officers says, you should really get an answering machine. Nobody has those anymore. But I remember having... My grandmother had an answering machine. My parents had an answering machine. Like, I remember answering machines. So, yeah, I think that's, like, the only thing. And Oh, and beepers. An off- beepers. And beepers. beepers are a thing. It's, but you know what? It, it's such an offhanded remark that, like, no one would really notice it anyway. So, yeah. Um, this movie's great. Uh, uh, Seven's one of those comfort films I, like, keep talking about. I watch Seven a lot. I give this movie seven out of seven deadly sins because I think it's timeless. I think that it still works. It's still impactful. And even if you know who John Doe is going into this movie, I think that the rest of the movie carries so much weight with it. And, and it's just, it's just, it's so good. It really, it really fucking gets you. And like I said, at the beginning of this episode, um, when asked, if there is an image from a horror movie that you've seen over the course of your from any movie horror movie that you've seen over the course of your life that has an image that has uh, had an impact on you, like what is it? I'm tied between Zelda from Pet Cemetery 
and and the sloth victim from this movie there is something about seeing him under that sheet for the first time and then the first time he breathes that it has an impact on you and i have never forgotten it so i would give this five out of five pretty heads in a box (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a lot for the same reasons as rye this movie is so well written so well executed it has like this pervasive atmospheric oppressive environment that just like it's bleak like like the setting is bleak like metro is like dirt as hell it's always raining um even how the film looks like they chemically dyed it in a specific way to make it look much darker than it than it is um and then like the performances are great and then you know you went you you heard my giant long philosophical rant i live for that shit like i love philosophy it's great so yeah this hits all the buttons of like a of a chris movie i love this film and it's dark and twisted and you probably need a tub of ice cream to eat after you watch it but it's just as as john doe intended it to it it will it won't leave you you just it just sits in the back of your mind you're like oh it's great on that note Thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. Uh, yeah, so we, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, we should definitely do some other David Fincher properties mind hunter cough cough mind hunter <laughs> i'm down i'm down i'm down uh yeah so we hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget stay, stay dreadful, dreadful. <laughs>